Greetings! Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Hey Chris, how you doing man? I'm doing well this week. We are enjoying very warm weather today. It, it Last week, we talked a little bit about spring and how spring can vary uh, in the upper Midwest, how it can be very warm, it can be very cold. Uh, yesterday, it got up to 71 degrees, which I guess is warm enough to bust out swimming pools and swimsuits and and sprinklers and, uh, you know, those, those we call them, I guess, in our household squirters, probably because my mom does, but they're, yes. they're, they're like squirt guns, but way better than squirt guns we had as a kid. You know, squirt guns where you had to pull out the... The, the little stopper and and hold it over the sink and and fill it up and you're so terrible the worst squirt, yeah a few feet uh <laughs> yeah. this little weak stream where um these the squirters uh costco will sell you them in two you can get them at the dollar store but costco will sell you heavy duty ones that where you can squirt a stream of water like i don't know what 30 feet right right yeah. they're they're legitimately impressive that's right and uh our kids are still the age where playing outside it doesn't need to be even be warm just playing in the water is a delight so that that was yesterday and today it's it's approaching 80 degrees which in april um feels like it you know we're not accustomed to 80 so it feels like it's about 170 so that's what's going on today lots of sunshine uh it's interesting the habits of my children is is uh in a lot of things they binge and the binge can last just about any length of time. And, and so, I mean, favorite foods, um, hobbies, likes, uh, favorite movie. Uh, you know, Jordan had a three-year span probably where everything, she lived and breathed Thomas the Train. Oh, I love um, that page too. But that, then that when she dropped it, like she did not look back. <laughs> so, and so th this is with many things with just like, oh, I'm really into this thing until I'm not. And so uh, I think episodes one and two, we talked a lot about biking, how how Jordan was on her bike in the neighborhood round and round. She hasn't been on a, on a bike for maybe 10 days. So really? Yeah, we're on the. Did it. And then when she was done, she was very, very done. She's done. I mean, and so this isn't like a permanent thing, but like, we'll see when she picks it back up. She'll probably pick it back up and be really into it. But um yeah, I mean, even if we wanted to bike today here in Pittsburgh, it would be it would be rough. Um, yesterday I think I sent you some pictures of snow. <laughs> um, today Simon and I had a half-hearted attempt at a basketball game, and we were driven in with with cold fingers. Plus, I have another problem now when I play basketball. My uh, Corona hair is so long that when I'm shooting baskets, I have this um, this 
irritating and almost semi-painful thing that happens with a jump shot when I when I land on the ground. Um, uh, hair literally slaps me in the eyes. Like my hair is coming down over my eyes and it's just flopping all over the place. It's a flock of seagulls that's out of control. <laughs> um, I'm we, a little embarrassed now we, when I... Uh, we know you're in trouble when you ask your wife for a hair tie. That's right. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed that for work when I uh, when we're doing Zoom or Google Meet. Um, uh, when when my camera's on, like when it's smaller meetings, when it's when it's large organizational stuff, I, I just turn my camera off and I'm just kind of present. But when it's smaller meetings, um, I'll have the, the the camera on just you know so it's a sense that our team is all there and we can see each other. And uh, and and I'm obviously starting to look. Um, homeless <laughs> is there any way to simulate does zoom have a setting of of where you can simulate having a really really bad webcam you know like there, there's actually a, a touch-up like touch my face up mode um uh, okay and, i mean that's fine but like if, if if your hair is not looking good and you want to <laughs> you know just kind of cover that up could you just or or do you just sit sit um such that like at your back is is really backlit like there's a sunny window or something so that no one can see you is, is that the well, way to do it that, that would be a, a good strategy as well just to straight up backlight myself so that's that's something to think about too yeah um well well simon and i were uh, just playing uh, basketball in the front in the driveway in the back um on our treehouse uh daphne has discovered how to jump off the first level so she's Ooh. very excited about that grabbed me Demanded that I uh, that I take a picture, take a video of her doing that, and I did. I did get a good one. I'll I'll send it to you later. It's pretty impressive. But the other impressive thing, and I, you, you and I never had dogs growing up. Um, our mother, our mother, our dad grew up with dogs. Our mother grew up with dogs as well, but more farm dogs, and they were kind of stinky creatures or whatever. And so she didn't like dogs around the house, and so we didn't have dogs around the house. So I never had dogs. This is my first dog. I'm six months into my first dog. Um, and I don't, I don't think this is a common thing. She can, Iris can climb the ladder to the first level of the treehouse. Oh, wow. And I know that you, you know what that ladder looks like. Uh, listener, the ladder is, um, it's pretty steep. It's not, it's not 90 degrees from the ground, but it might be 70, 75. Um, and she can climb that. And then she climbs down it, just clambers down, not like it's a mistake or like she's terrified or she doesn't, oh, what the heck, I'll just jump down. Um, no, it's very intentional, controlled, one one paw in front of the other, and then she's down. I, I've never seen anything like it. It's <laughs> At some point, I'll, I'll, I'll capture it on video and I'll share it with you. Now, you need to get to the second level to go down the slide, right? Uh, or is, it, or is that the like first level? level? One point, the slide is on level okay. 1.5. So you take it like a 90 degree turn, you go up like, like one step and then around and have, uh, it, have the kids enticed uh, her to go down the slide with them yet? Though that she is properly terrified. Of. <laughs> She's like, she, and she can kind of tell that they have a glint in their eye and like, Iris, come here. Ooh, Iris, we have, Ooh, you're going to love this. And she's like, no, 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 no. she's like, I'm smarter than this. Come on guys. I know, I know what you want. Um, yeah. Kids, kids can't conceal their, their, uh, uh, the remnants of, of, of uh, their sinful nature that haven't quite been washed in the waters of baptism. 
Right. Well, you've seen dogs <laughs> on, on bare floor, any dog that's been in our cabin at the bare floor, mm-hmm. you've like seen like when they try to turn a corner, they kind of like they panic and they spin their wheels. So I, I, I have to imagine that on a slide on a slippery surface like that, when a dog would panic and just kind of spin their wheels and not, not kind of go with it in the way that we kind of learn how to go with it, but pure speculation. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> You mentioned Daphne jumping from the first level. I, I remember just growing up being boys and just doing dumb and dangerous stuff, just jumping off. Like we would jump off of high things just for the fun of it. And uh, so you you have a really interesting nature versus nurture thing going on, raising a daughter who has three older brothers. Right. Um, so her desiring a grappling hook and jumping off stuff. <laughs> I, it's, it's just interesting to check in and see kind of what this experiment is like. So do you, do you remember, um, our cousin Aaron, who was like the real daredevil in the family? Oh yeah. I, I, um, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. What am I going to say? You're going to say he jumped off the very top of our, of our treehouse, <laughs> which must've been, I, I don't even know how high that would have been. Like, would that have been like <laughs> 18 feet high? Maybe I don't, I, I, I have to believe so. I have no. to believe that. Yeah. I mean, at least 15 feet. That, that's in my head. But he's the one who taught us that it's possible to just straight up jump off a roof. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and maybe even the peak of it. Yes. Right. And then we would feel like a chicken, like, dang it. And, uh, and I, then I would jump off the roof. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just, that is definitely something I would not do now. Nope. <laughs> and I, I feel that's that's one of the beauties of being an adult is... You know, you know who you are, you know what you like, you know what you don't like. You no longer feel like you have to do things to be something because you know what you are and you're not out to prove anything to yourself or to others. And my days of jumping off of buildings are very <laughs> much done. <laughs> yeah. I was looking at our forecast and we, uh, we, don't have, we don't have anything that's 60 degrees in sun. So we have some 60 degrees in rain coming up. But for the next two weeks, we don't even have any sunny days that reach 60 degrees. So very strange. We had a we had a mild winter in which um, we'll probably pay for it in terms of like ticks and spiders and stuff that didn't kind of kill off a lot of the insects here in Pittsburgh. And yet in the spring we just kind of have this um, winterish thing that per- uh, that persists. Yeah, kind of kind of drab too with with the clouds, huh? It is, which is very much a Pittsburgh thing. Uh, yeah. You remember that? Oh yeah. Um, so do you remember in England newspapers would um, would uh, <laughs> For would would mark how many sunny days they they'd had that city had had so far, and then uh, forecast how many hours of sun that day. Mm-hmm. And we we you know from the sunny upper Midwest, um, we chuckled at that. Um, and and now I think I think we probably live in a fairly Englandish climate here in the Ohio River Valley. Yeah. Um. I someone, I, I think Kim, my wife knows the number of days she she has seen this stat. I think it's under a hundred sunny days that we have in Pittsburgh. Which really, that's when you when you kind of turn it into a fraction, you know, <laughs> 80, uh, 85 out of one three hundred sixty five. That's really depressing. What? Why are we here? What? Are, what do we do? It well, yeah, we're here because the people we love are here. So, yeah. <laughs> so, third week of Easter coming up, Christopher. Yeah, that's that's a really good contrast between cloudy depression and despair. And the third Sunday of Easter, which is 
quite the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Should we uh, should we take a look at that gospel reading? Let's do it. I. I- doing the reading. Do you want to do the reading this week? Yeah, I would love to do that. I would love to do that. Um, The gospel for this year, um, in the third Sunday after Easter, is uh, on, or the second Sunday after Easter, pardon me, is uh, on the road to Emmaus. It's Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, and you'll find this link in the show notes. That very day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What thing? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. 
and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Here ends the lesson. So, Christopher, what do you make of this? This is a rich and wonderful, uh, just, this is a rich and wonderful passage. This entire Easter season, of course, where we have these resurrection appearances. I mean, it's clear that Jesus had more that he wanted to give his disciples before he left. That he wasn't just going to leave that to the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That, in fact, Jesus had things to teach them, to show them. Uh, And just as with Doubting Thomas, uh, and again, I I call it that to identify it, uh, not because I like that term, but uh, how, how Jesus does appear to his disciples. And that Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that he appeared to 500 others, many of whom are still alive today. He's like, yeah, you, like, if you want eyewitness, like, it's not just an empty tomb, and it's not just that, that um, the two women uh, saw him, although uh, it is interesting that, that we have women as the first witnesses, considering that in a court of law, they would not have been uh, valid witness, eyewitness testimony. Um, the reason that two women are the eyewitnesses in Scripture is because why, Kirk? Because it's true. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like they, they, if, if, if someone were making this story up, it would look much different. So, uh, so uh, this is very rich, and uh, the early church loved this passage. Um, well, that's so, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll get to that. I'll get to that. I, I do want to say this as far as Easter. I think um, people... Uh, maybe in liberal Protestantism might uh, overemphasize um, kind of the renewed uh, spring aspects of the Easter season that like, ah, look how like green things are flourishing and God is, is renewing things. And, and um, we we think of this in terms of just maybe um, planting and harvest and, and just, um, uh, even if, just, if even just in healing. Australia, if you're in Australia, that <laughs> metaphor breaks down. Obviously, <laughs> that is true. That is true. That is yeah. true. But I think maybe if you're on the complete um, opposite side, uh, not I'm sorry, not the complete opposite side, but like if you are just really, really confessionally Lutheran, and your emphasis is is on um, the juridical aspects of the forgiveness of sins and um, uh, and uh, you're looking more of, of uh, uh, being declared righteous apart from being righteous, um, which, of course, the, these things on both sides are, are true, right? That, uh, that God both renews things and um, that there is a um, forensic reality that we are declared righteous. It, like, that's the nugget of the gospel is that God... Uh, that God... Um, brings righteousness to unrighteous people that God justifies the unrighteous. Like that is the gospel. Um, but 
we need to meet in the middle and remember that um, what has happened in Easter, that um, in fact, God is has renewed things and is renewing things and has made possible um, restoration and healing um, that wasn't possible before his suffering, death, and resurrection. Amen? Amen. Amen. So so we need to keep these things, um, both of these things, not to lean too much uh, to one side, because it's easy to lean too much to one side and see the truth in that at the expense of of maybe what we see as the other end of the... um, of the spectrum. So, um, I, uh, it's, it's, it's so funny that you, um, you brought up, um, the, the Lutheran side of things, um, that we are, uh, imputed, declared legally righteous, um, as in a courtroom, um, uh, status is declared to someone by a, by a judge. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's called forensic righteousness. Um, we were last couple of weeks, uh, the name of John Dunn has come up. I was just reading, um, one of his poems this morning, um, and uh, that exact language John Donne used. I, I know that there are some in our tradition in Anglicanism that that um, sometimes uh, withdraw from the language of imputation uh, and prefer kind of the more Roman Catholic uh, model of infusion. But at the end of his sixth holy sonnet, he says, um, he says, uh, so fall my sins that all may have their right to wear their bread and would press me to hell. Impute me righteous, mm. thus purged of evil, for thus I leave the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I do, I do not mean to take you off of your, you, you had a train of thought. It was beautiful. It was eloquent. It was profound. <laughs> it was leading somewhere. And no, that- I just ripped you off of it because what you were saying had reminded me of a poem I read this morning. No, that's so great. That's that. great. That's great. And that's, a, that's great. And that's also a great humble brag. You know, I was reading John Donne this morning, you know. <laughs> um, so so I, I guess it's appropriate at this point to, to, to just emphasize that we are, um, that we as Anglicans, we, we refer to ourselves as, as the via media. And uh, I want to provide a little bit of clarity there. Um, so, so some Anglicans have taken that to mean we're, we're, the, we're the via media between all things. Um, which is, you know, cra- you know, crazy uh, to, which to in say. practice often ends up being nothing. Yeah, like, well, and can you be the via media between something very good and something very bad? Um, but but <laughs> like during the Reformation era, like we were a very conservative uh, Reformation movement, um, kind of half um, middle the middle way between Rome and what was happening um, with the Continental Reformed in Geneva and 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 uh, and. Uh, in Augsburg and, and in other places. But that's not to say that we like strike a place immediately between to say, Oh, well, we want to bridge this gap. That's, that's, that's not what we mean. But like um, the Anglican movement is very broad and, and uh, is not seeking to do anything new. In fact, except to, um, to in, pa- faithfully pass on what we have received. And so, you know, we referred uh, in, in earlier episodes to us being a Catholic church Um and what that means to be a small C Catholic church is is that um, uh, as early uh, re- really in the first century we saw this this Catholic polity small C Catholic polity of uh, this threefold ministry of bishop priest and deacon um, and, and we see this in the the early writings of an early bishop um, um, Ignatius of Antioch um, uh, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. so we we see. Um, what is already emerging in scripture. Um, but 
but we'll, and, and there was only one church up until the Great Schism, and where East and West um, split in the 11th century. Can I, just, can I just put a pin in that for just a moment, so that people who maybe aren't familiar with first century and second century church history, how close Ignatius of Antioch was to the apostles? <laughs> yeah, um, his teacher Polycarp. Polycarp's teacher was St. John. <laughs> yeah. So Ignatius of Antioch, when he writes of the, the of the church, which is recognizably Catholic in the way that we now would recognize it in the 21st century, he was within living memory of St. John, the author of the gospel. So um, this is not people who are making stuff up hundreds of years after our Lord's death. This, this, this occurs immediately after his death. So... Yeah. Yeah. And and so th- there's this great schism which which you may have heard of where the church split east and west and the east we call eastern orthodox and and the, ch- the church in the west uh was was the roman catholic church um based in, um not based in rome but like uh the early church um all the church fathers did see that, that there was a sense of superiority um of the bishop of rome um but not in the sense that like um that he, uh, that the Bishop of Rome retained some sort of um, magisterial, like teaching authority to say, um, like the, the the nineteen. It was it wasn't until the nineteenth century that we in fact have have um, uh, papal inerrancy um, and the sense that the, the Pope could sit ex cathedra and make doctrine. Like like that was not. Um, uh, official doctrine until the 19th century. That was actually a very late innovation. Um, but there was a sense in the early church. Yeah, of course, the sort of the Bishop of Rome is, is sort of the first among equals, but like not in a, in a super, not in a way that like he could make doctrine. And so as the church, um, uh, progressed through the ages, um, that authority, um, grew um in the bishop of rome um and um during the reformation period um what happened between luther and rome was that luther would argue using the plain words of scripture and canon lawyers from rome would argue with canon law which came from the teaching authority of the pope um and and like luther would would lose those battles even though he's like arguing with scripture and that frustrated him to no end and so um in in the midst of this, the the Anglican Church emerged um, as a church apart from the uh, the authority of the Bishop of Rome, but still remaining like retaining this apostolic succession. This uh, it just um, no longer was under the authority of Rome. So it's not a church that started was started by Henry VIII. Um, it's a church that was started um, in the first century and. Um, uh, and it's part of that stream. Um, and, uh, you know, there are various dates you could give it. Um, was it Gregory the Great who sent um, Augustine of Canterbury to England as the first bishop? Um, like, that would be an appropriate uh, uh, date to, to place as, <laughs> as the beginning of the Anglican Church, because the Anglican Church is only the church in England. Um, and and um, since the time of Henry VIII, who's unfortunately one of our most famous um, uh adherence i guess um un- unfortunately uh we're associated with with him and his actions um and his proclivity to remove uh the the heads of his wives um yeah you know i have a hat i wear periodically where it's a, a defend henry the eighth hat and maybe <laughs> and, and it's some some further maybe we can do an episode or two or three or on uh, on the reformation and and um stop and smell the roses and look at some of those things 
a little and, bit. Yeah, I, I did not plan on giving a whole history of the Anglican Church. <laughs> um, I did not plan on any of this. Yeah. All, all I'm saying is is um that we're not seeking to do anything new to restart anything except to to uh, we've and and if if you look at our like beliefs like we it says like we have nothing necessarily new to contribute except like the the ancient faith. Um, and, and so with that, uh, in mind, that's why we, we kind of reach to say, here's what the Lutherans have to teach us. Here's what the reformed have to teach us. Here's where our, you know, the Roman Catholic tradition and, and some of it, we kind of hold at arm's length and some of it we embrace, um, you know, we, um, you know, we kind of hold at arm's length, this idea of, of infused righteousness, um, Kirk mentioned. So anyway, yeah, I'm sorry about that, that, uh, long aside. Um, but I, uh, I don't even know how we started that, but <laughs> you, you, I, you were, you were something about this passage had, um, reminded you of the contrast between liberal Protestantism, seeing Easter as, um, a metaphor for renewal. And then the other side, kind of a hard Lutheran forensic righteousness, Some, something, something. Yeah. Well, you. and it's, and just this via media, like we're not saying we, are going to take the middle approach between everything, but like we are inheritors of, of many, many things. So the, um, we don't know, uh, who these two people are. Uh, one of them, I guess is identified as Cleopas, but he's, um, there's some people who think that he's Clopas from, from Acts. Um, and, and there's some pretty good arguments for that. Uh, I just want to point out, uh, that maybe if we come up and, and, from what we learned in, in, in Sunday school, um, we get a sense of there being the 12 disciples and that's about it. And then, Oh, I guess there were some women, um, around as well. Um, but, but Luke, um, in, uh, Luke chapter nine, um, is it nine? I don't remember where, but, uh, um, that Jesus sends out the 72. Mm, maybe, that, right. maybe that's, maybe that's Luke eight. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I only have it up in front of me electronically. I don't have. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, in Luke eight, we also have these women who accompany him. So there are twelve, but there are also some women. Um, Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, um, Herod's household manager, um, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. It's interesting that Jesus had um, some women who essentially supported him financially. Um, but Jesus also had these seventy-two that he sent out. Um, so th- like. Unless it's referring just to the twelve, um, if it just uses the um, a more vague term disciples, it may be referring to any number of people that followed him, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and um, so it could be Cleopas and his wife, it could be Cleopas and his son. Uh, we don't we don't know who this other um, person is, and uh, Jesus drew near to them. They were kept from recognizing him. And this seems to be kind of a spiritual thing that like their eyes were like the Lord supernaturally kept them from, from recognizing him, although it's not clear. And uh, Jesus acts confused as they're talking about Jesus. Um, and uh, I guess the one thing that I want to highlight before I, I pass it over to you is, is just the line we had hoped. Mm-hmm. We had hoped that he was the one to redeemed Israel. Yeah. You there? I I'm here. I was going to hand it over <laughs> to you, but I oh, Okay. All or, right. You know I could talk forever. So, yes. I'm just yeah. Um I mean, that's a big thing is that like um many of the disciples um were, you know, were still confused. Last week we had them like behind locked doors out of fear for the Jews. Um, um even even though uh they 
even though Cleopas and, and this uh, other person had heard of the resurrection of Jesus and had heard these stories, um, in their minds, Jesus was still, um, might be a little far saying that, that he sounds like a failure to them, but he clearly had not fulfilled their hopes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, I have several thoughts that, that I'd written down. Um, uh, first of all, we, uh, we read this, um, this, this comes frequently in lectionaries. Uh, if, uh, if anyone goes to church on Easter, e- the, the evening, Sunday evening, this is always the reading then. Um, so I've often, I, 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 for a decade played music at a church that, um, that has uh, even song on Easter and, uh, and this has always been the reading, and so it's really um, wormed its way into my heart and kind of my memory and the rhythms of Easter Day for me. And uh, I have this as even now as we read it, I uh, I feel the sun um, at, at a lower level going coming through the stained glass windows of that of that church because it's uh, you know six thirty p.m. as as we're uh, we're hearing this reading, um, which is so fitting because of. Um, because of the nature of the reading, right? We have uh, the the day's travel are over; they're stopping. Um, Jesus makes as if he's going to go on, and then there's this fateful line. Uh, well, where is it? This is this is this is high quality podcasting right here. When you can't find the verse you're looking for, um, uh, here it is: 28, 20, 29. Uh, he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. And I've only encountered this fact in the last four or five years, but the lovely hymn, Abide With Me, Fast Falls the Even Tide, this is the text for that. Mm. And uh, the verses that we sing um, uh, sort of hide that fact. Um, when you, if, if you ever, and I, I'll, I'll put this in the show notes as well, if you ever look at the full poem that was written, uh, it becomes more obvious that this is the, this is a meditation on the road to Emmaus, um, and uh, and the hymn writer, uh, his name was William Henry Monk, and uh, he was was he was he Anglo Irish was he Scottish anyway he was uh, he was a, a rector, and uh, I I believe that he was nearing the end of his life or he was sick. Uh, again, this is fantastic show prep. We, we're just we're just all over the show prep here today. Um, but my, that's my memory um, is that uh, some of the verses um, where he um, he's looking back, uh, oh, uh, change and decay, and all around I see, oh thou who changes not abide with me. Uh, swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Um, that, that that those are very personal verses. Mm. But anyhow, there's a verse I'd, I'd like to read it. A verse that we skip. That um, that really highlights this road to Emmaus aspect of this hymn, and has really transfigured this hymn for me. Uh, I'll read it in a moment. Uh, our father Christopher um, has commented that this is so associated with funerals for so many people that it mm-hmm. becomes difficult for many clergy to um, to put into a Sunday service. And recently, I've begun to kind of push back against that, and we've we've we do it a couple times a year, um, just because it it's so lovely and it should be kind of on our lips and in our hearts and in our minds. Um, but so we know the first verse: "Abide with me, fast falls the even tide." 
right? That, and that, that is pretty faithfully echoing what the disciples say. The darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Um, and I had already read the, the second verse swift to its close. Um, but we have, uh, here's the verse that we never read or we never sing. Not a brief glance I beg, a passing word, but as thou dwelt'st with thy disciples, Lord, familiar, condescending, patient, free, come not to sojourn, but abide with me. Um, and so uh, that verse highlights how Jesus was making as if to travel, right, to sojourn in the old-fashioned sense of the word, um, and how they beg him to stay. Um, but I love that line, not a brief glance I beg or a passing word, but as thou dwellst with thy disciples, Lord. And then these, these adjectives, familiar, condescending, patient, free, which is ultimately what they get from him, right? He does converse long with them. I love that. Condescending in the old-fashioned sense, mm-hmm. right. not looking down, sneering upon someone, but someone of a higher level than you, someone who you couldn't really expect to um, have a long conversation with you to take you seriously for them to actually do that. Um, so so there's that. I, I, I love that. I think of that hymn, Abide With Me, um, every time I come across this reading. I also, there's um, there's a Eucharistic element, an undeniable Eucharistic element to this passage. Um, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Um, and, uh, there's, there's something about Holy Communion that opens the eyes of our heart. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a hymn uh, attributed to Thomas Aquinas. Um, is it open the uh, eyes of my heart, Lord? It is not that, but even as I said that, I was like, oh my gosh, it sounds like I'm about to break out and to open the eyes of my heart, Lord. <laughs> um, uh, something, my tongue, that mystery telling, um, but it talks about faith, um, makes sight in Holy Communion, sight of the heart possible, right? So to what the unbeliever looks like bread and wine, um, the gift of faith from Christ um, makes it his body and blood for his believers, um, and we see that here, right? At the breaking of bread, um, their eyes are opened. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is a, a theme that you begin to see in the Old Testament once you have eyes to see it. Uh, when when the ship crashes in Acts, um, oh, shoot, the, what's the island off the southern tip of Italy? In, in Paul's missionary journey. Oh, it's not coming to me. Um, it's not coming is, to me either. <laughs> um so 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 Paul Paul is shipwrecked uh, at one point um on an island and um and actually before he shipwrecked there's a storm um and if you recall they try they try a bunch of things they try to throw throw um items off there's a long storm and and there's actually a passage there and this isn't the famous passage everyone loves the passage when when the ship is wrecked and when they when uh, when they actually land and and uh, snake leaps out of the fire and it doesn't kill Paul and they all think he's a god, those are the things I remembered as a child. But there's a quieter passage when Saint Paul breaks bread and gives thanks for it, and suddenly everyone's calmed. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not saying they were celebrating Holy Communion there. I'm not saying this is Holy Communion, 
Um, but there's clear that uh, the eyes of faith are, are opened up uh, when our Lord breaks bread here. So I love that. Um, there's a there's a painting in in uh, uh, Pittsburgh Art Museum where the artist depicts this moment of breaking of bread. And uh, I actually 10, 12 years ago, I took uh, my my history class, 10th grade world history class there. Um, and uh, the the lady who was giving the tour did a marvelous job explaining this painting. She said, if you look off to the right, you can see the the painter, the artist, with his family. And his family, uh, his wife and his children are transfixed and they're drawing near to Jesus mm. as the bread is being broken and the setting sun behind him is is backlighting Jesus and backlighting the bread that he's breaking and it's transfiguring all of it. And you can see the eyes of faith being open both in the two disciples and in the wife and the children. And the artist is impassively in the background with sort of a, a blank look, a philosophic look perhaps on his face. And um, the, uh, the docent pointed out that this artist um, wanted perhaps to believe, but, but, the, but mm. was not mm. sparked into faith by this passage. And mm. uh, it's uh, ever since then, every time uh, my wife and I, or my wife and I and our children have gone through and gone past that, it's a really poignant, poignant painting. So I recommend it to any Pittsburghers that go past. So those are, those are my thoughts on that passage. That is, that is really interesting um, because uh, so much of this passage is um, kind of the revealing of Jesus um, and how yes. Jesus reveals himself to him and how they begin um, not having knowledge and so they're like literally walking with the one who is, they're walking along the way, Augustine pointed out, um, with the one who is the way. Yes. <laughs> and um, can you hear that? Nope. Okay. I'm being FaceTimed. Uh, anyway, so they are walking along the way with someone who is the way and they don't recognize him. And and so Jesus kind of baits them into this conversation um, you I know, love it. They're like, we had hoped, uh, and they kind of explain their, their stuff. And, and so just to understand where their hearts are, the thought of a suffering Messiah in Judaism would have been totally foreign to, to, to these pre-Christian Jews. Um, sure, we have the, song, the suffering songs, uh, the songs of the suffering servant in Isaiah, but the, the suffering servant is a righteous one. Um, the servants of the Lord identified um, in the Old Testament in in uh in isaiah here is is not identified as the messiah just as a righteous um servant of the lord um but we can see now um especially in this passage and jesus may have even in you know as he interprets all the scriptures and and i'll get to that verse um this very very key verse um we're able to see this now and it's interesting um when um philip uh, meets the ethiopian eunuch in acts chapter 8 the Philip is asked by the eunuch uh, about Isaiah 53, 7. And Philip, it says, he opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, with this scripture, declared to him the good news about Jesus. And so um, it's uh, the kind of the key passage, perhaps in the whole Bible. Um, not really, but um, like <laughs> a wonderful verse is, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. Um, that's that's verse twenty-seven. Jesus um, shows how the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, that these were pointing to him. And though though they had been walking with him and, and hearing this, they they still um, there's this difference between. It's interesting you point out this painter who had an intellectual idea of who Jesus is without his eyes being opened to who he right. is. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and before I, I get to other things, uh, there, there is, uh, the early church pointed a lot, like I said, this is a, the early church loved this, and they talked a lot about hospitality in the early church. Like, this was a big value, something that's a little bit uh, less... Uh, ubiquitous in America, right? That that we we see it as a commodified thing. That there's a hospitality industry, but hospitality, um, have, uh, leaving a place in your home for 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 even a stranger. Um, uh, Gregory the Great said uh, of this passage the fact that they um, had invited Jesus to stay with them. Um, had they not done this, they would have missed out on on Jesus revealing himself to them. So Gregory the Great said. Because they could not be strangers to charity with whom charity was walking, they invite him mm. as if a stranger to partake of their hospitality. Oh, that's beautiful. And Augustine said, and because they observed hospitality, him who they knew not yet in the expounding of the scriptures, they suddenly know in the breaking of the bread. So th- there is this difference. Um, and, and there is both, uh, there, there's an active component, right? To, um, because... They, they, they heard, uh, they obeyed in this hospitality sense, and then Jesus was revealed to them. Um, uh, and uh, like you said, this, is a, the, this passage is the powerful nexus of the church's understanding of the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. Because we have this formulaic narration that Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. So this is um, just the same words are used when he feeds the 5,000 and yes. um, in the institution of, of Holy Communion. Um, as they celebrate the Passover, um, and Augustine says, he's, Augustine says everything in the Scriptures speaks of Christ, but only to him who has ears. That Jesus mm. opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and so we should pray that He will open our own. And not just Augustine, uh, but John Wesley. We have many accounts of people who who. Um, you know, in this passage, they talk about that we're not our hearts. Uh, what what's, what's the, what did they say? We're not our hearts. Strangely warmed. Or am I am I co-opting Wesley's? Uh, You're co-opting Wesley. We're not. Did not our hearts burn, burn. within us? Mm. Burn within us. Yep. And and so uh, Augustine, um, you know, heard this voice, take up and read, and he read and he believed. Um, and and Wesley um, was contemplating. Um, um, kind of the truths, really, the Reformation truths. Uh, he was getting ready to go to a, a reading of Luther's um, commentary uh, on, was it Romans or Galatians? Romans or Galatians. Well, well, so, <laughs> Romans. Something about free, freedom in Christ. Uh, and, and he says, I believed, you know, like that Jesus died for me. You know, where, it's interesting that John Wesley had been in ministry for years and years and years before he, he actually, you know, had a converted heart. Do you know um, the worst aspect of that night? In terms of kind of dam- damning to us as Anglicans, hmm. he had attended Evensong at St. Mm. Paul's Cathedral mm. and was still restless and went by then the Moravian church that he liked to go by. And then that's where he had the awakening experience. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we pray for the Holy Spirit um, to open our eyes, to open our ears. Jesus said, let him who have ears, let him hear. Um, and sometimes we don't have the power to do that on our own. Sometimes Jesus, you know, yes. condescends to us. Um, and uh, but, but we who are converted of heart um, pray for just a continuing renewed sense of what he has to say in the scriptures. There's no, like none of us who have converted hearts say, Oh, well, I, I know these stories. Like these stories are almost always new in that. Like God has something for us in them as he um, has promised to, to replace our hearts of stone with, with living hearts. Um, and, and, and the living heart is one that continually seeks the Lord um, and seeks to kind of grow and learn Um and um, so that's why every year we read these passages multiple times and, um, and and we look for what God is revealing to us in them. And, and so that's a, that's a powerful thing to consider and uh, not to beat a dead horse, um, but, but, but uh, I do want to kind of uh, provide further evidence for things that we've um, talked about before, um, but that Jesus disappeared. Yeah. He didn't throw yep. a smoke bomb, you know, no. they, but he disappeared. He vanished. Um, and then he appeared um, just a, a a few verses later. Um, so uh, I, I don't know what if John Calvin. Um, yes. You know, if, I was if, thinking about if, that. If I haven't read smoke bomb. You know, um, but but there's there's clearly something different about this resurrection body that he can appear and disappear. That's right. I I agree with that. Yeah. Shall we tie a bow on uh, tie a bow on this? Leave it for uh, the rest for Sunday. Sounds good. All right. So uh, for our theology segment today, um, I'd like to talk about Easter hymns in general and look at a particular Easter hymn briefly. I feel very keenly, Christopher, the lack of Easter hymn singing this year Mm. Um, because uh, I, as a church musician, I'm not preparing them. I'm not preparing arrangements for them. I'm not rehearsing choirs. I'm not singing them in church. and so they're they're less in my in my ears, in my mind, in my heart, on my tongue, and I'm feeling that keenly. And so I, a little pedantically at times, have like gathered my family around. I'm like, dang it, we're singing some Easter hymns. <laughs> I'm try, trying to beat it into us, and it's there's a sense on their face they kind of go through the motions, but there's a sense that it's not the same. I think we're all kind of missing it. So I wanted to think think through with you a little bit of ways of, of, of getting these things in our hearts and on our lips and memorizing them and having us humming them. Um, and, and I actually do think it's important for us to be, as Christians, to be humming hymns and memorizing hymns. Um, we're going to be humming some music. Uh, and, uh, and will it be the world's music or will it be our Lord's music? So that's, um, that's, that's something to consider. And, uh, there, there are, there are, um, YouTube channels that you can subscribe to, and I do, <laughs> and I do play them, and I do listen to them. And it's easy for me, of course, because I have a dozen hymnals around, and I'm a church musician, and I have a piano. 
Um, but for people who, uh, listeners, for those of you who aren't musicians or don't have pianos around, um, I'll leave in our notes a couple of links to um, to compilations of Easter hymns mm. um, for, you to, for you to play or to think about, because um, it's good for us. This is the season, and we should be having the lessons from the Gospels. We should be singing them and having them in our in our minds and in our hearts. Uh, there's a particular Easter hymn that I want to talk about today, and uh, if uh, certain traditions have it, and then other traditions don't. I know, for example, Christopher, you and I, growing up, um, the Methodist hymnal, which is a great hymnal, um, and in its various guises that you and I have had, um, it's been a great hymnal, and I would recommend it. Uh, it there's a odd, lot of overlap, I think, with uh, Episcopal and Anglican hymnals, certainly English hymnody. I'm an English hymn chauvinist. <laughs> hmm. I think the rest of the church, when they try to sing, they they aspire to be us at their best. Well, that's that's a pleasant surprise there. Um, sorry about that. And uh, anyhow, this is a hymn that we didn't grow up with, but it's uh, but it's a common hymn in uh, in other traditions, including the Episcopal slash Anglican tradition. And it's "Come Ye Faithful, Raise the Strain." And uh, it was written by John of Damascus in the 8th century. Um, and think of that, Damascus, 8th century, 700s. Who's taken over Damascus in the 700s? Well, Muslim warlords. So this is, uh, Christians are a minority in Damascus already at this point. So when we read John of Damascus's writings, I, I think it, it lends poignancy to realize he's writing this as he's hearing the, the Muslim call to prayer in the morning, at noon, and in the evening. He's writing this as a beleaguered minority already in Damascus. Um, but this is what he writes. Uh, and this is translated by John Mason Neal, uh, an amazing uh, 19th century poet. He translated O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, and a lot of other hymns that we love. Uh, Come ye faithful, raise the strain of triumphant gladness. God hath brought his Israel into joy from sadness, loosed from Pharaoh's bitter yoke, Jacob's sons and daughters, led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. That's the first verse. Tis the spring of souls today, Christ hath burst his prison, and from three days sleep in death, as a sun hath risen. All the winter of our sins Long and dark is flying from his light to whom we give laud and praise undying. And there are two more verses, um, and it's great. Uh, there are two common tunes that it's sung to. And Christopher, in as we talked about this, I never I never got from you um, what your favorite is, <laughs> but there there are two, and um, we'll I'll play them for a, a listener. You'll get to hear them as well. Uh, one, the older one, uh, the older one goes like this. Come ye faithful, raise the strain of triumphant gladness. Um, the newer tune that we sing at our church is by a guy by the name of Arthur Sullivan. And if you recognize that name, it's because it's Gilbert and Sullivan uh, 19th century light opera, and it sounds like uh, Victorian tub thumping. Um, it goes, Come ye faithful, raise the strain of triumphant gladness. Um, which is your favorite, Christopher? 
Uh, I'm more familiar with that one. Um, and it is a tub thumper, like you said. Um, th- and uh, there, there is something about the rhythm of, of the previous one that, that uh, while quite good, um, I, I find a little awkward and, and a, a little less singable. But I think both are quite good. Yeah. Um, I had put on the website uh, four days ago or so uh, a poll for Easter hymns. Uh, that was actually on the Facebook page. And uh, do you remember what won? Uh, we had said, uh, Jesus Christ is risen today. I had said, set that aside. You mm-hmm. can't choose that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember which one won? Was it the Strife Azor? It may have been. It may have been, which is another great which, one. Which is a, another tub thumper. And um, because so much of it is um, just alleluia, 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 um, there isn't a lot to the text of that hymn. Yes. Yeah, um, that it is. It has been a practice in the past to uh, sing that at funerals yes. at the very end. So in the face of death, just be, just before we're about to bury the body of um, a deceased believer, we we take one last look at sin, death, and the devil, and we say, "You have not won. The strife is o'er. The battle done. That is the dead person, uh, the dead believer mm-hmm. in Christ won, not you." And that, that sometimes gives me chills. Well, it's interesting how our funeral services are services of, of resurrection, essentially. Um, uh, and the prayer book has such, such good notes on uh, concerning the service for, for pretty much any service that are just theologically rich and, and describe what it is that's happening. And I suppose there, there, um, there will come a day um, when we dis- when we define lex orandi, lex credendi, mm, yes, because um, that's an important part of what what it is that we do. Um, but uh, one of the ways that makes it a resur- a service of resurrection is that like we we bust out the pa- Paschal candle, so um, mm-hmm. the, we have the Paschal candle lit on the Easter vigil, and it remains lit um, throughout the Easter season, and then um, for it comes out for baptisms and for burials. Yeah. Um, and the last thing before we move on to our final segment, uh, the last thing to note about um, these ancient Easter texts, right? So John of Damascus is writing in the 700s, um, how heavily the early church linked Easter to Exodus. Mm, yes. And uh, Exodus is a precursor, a prefiguring of, of the true passing through the Red Sea waters, which is Christ's uh, shed blood. Um, and the, the metaphors... Um, Every verse meditates on something different, right? Loosed from Pharaoh's bitter yokes, Jacob's sons and daughters led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters, right? So mm-hmm. we have the true Red Sea waters. Um, it's, um, it's, it, it was one of the defining metaphors. And what in Greek, uh, in the Greek church, uh, the word for Easter is just Pascha, mm-hmm. right? Pa- Passover, <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, so the Greek church is celebrating literally Passover, right? When they celebrate Easter, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and for all we know, um, it says, you know, verse twenty-seven, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. For all we know, he walked them through. And he's like, hey, remember when Moses parted the Red Sea and they walked through it? Um, you know that that's you know that's like you being baptized, um, right? And and as you pass through those waters. Of your baptism, you are united with me in my death and, res- and resurrection. Um, for all we know, we did that um, because uh, it is, in fact, Peter 
um, who identifies uh, in, 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 is it first Peter, or second Peter, first Peter, first Peter yeah. that, that uh, he identifies baptism with the crossing of the Red Sea. Yeah. Uh, with Noah, with Noah's Ark, right? Oh yeah. Sorry. But none, <laughs> nonetheless, we see that the, yeah. we see that the apostles um, are, are, are seeing these um, early events in Genesis and Exodus as, as prefigurings of the true final full accomplishments in the life and work of, of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, take a final look. We, uh, we have some culture thoughts. Yeah. Christopher, I watched yesterday uh, episode one of Jordan. Um, Jordan's the the documentary that's got the internet all abuzz. Um, the Last Dance. Have you seen any of it at all? Nope. Okay, um, but you you and I were NBA fanatics growing up in the '90s and 2000s, so we were there. Um, we watched all of it, <laughs> NBA and NBC. Um, I could sing that theme song in my sleep right now, and it would be 1996 all over again. Um, I I could start dropping names. I know you could too of all the players they played against um, when they played against the Jazz, the Suns, all these teams. We were there. And so this is interesting now, 22 years later, to watch this. Um, I know I had sent you a message last night marveling. I graduated in 1998. In the spring of 98, they won their last championship, their sixth championship, six and eight years. And for me, I mean, this is maybe for many people, um, the year you graduate from high school, that kind of becomes enshrined in your memory. Um, So 22 years later, Christopher, watching the documentary, all the grainy footage and standard definition, whatever that was, 480 DPI, and the ties and the suits and the hair and the old cars, and all of it, it suddenly felt like it was like 15 years ago. It was crazy. Um, But I had some thoughts um, regarding uh, Michael Jordan and uh, his pursuit of excellence. You and I had talked a little bit about this and had been struck by um, some similar things. Um, There is, in in many athletes, particularly African-American athletes, um, when they're given a chance to talk about their childhood um, they're growing up, their, uh, their trials and tribulations, their career after the career, reflecting upon it, invariably faith comes up. Um, African-Americans continue to poll um, as, uh, as a just more Christian in the aggregate than any other segment of Americans. Um, and did Michael Jordan, have you ever heard him anywhere talk about God or his faith? We're relying upon faith in times of weakness. 
I, I can't recall such a time. That is because he never has done it. <laughs> and you and I talked a little bit about it. What is What made him great, Christopher? <laughs> his sociopathic tendency to want to crush his enemies. <laughs> Absolutely. And oh, does that come through. Um, it's, it's interesting. He, uh, so he famously, what, he got cut from his high school team, what, his, his sophomore year, I think, right? And he even invited that guy who beat him out, the last guy to make the team that he got cut for, he invited that guy to his Hall of Fame speech in 2009, was it 2009, 2012, I forget, to lord it over him, to say, you made it to the high school team, but look where I am now. It was unbelievable. I'll get to his his Hall of Fame speech in just a moment. Um, and uh, but by the time he uh, he he quickly um, using that that kind of psychopathic desire to to crush everyone before him, he becomes the best player at his high school. Um, then he chooses as as a roommate. I, I forget if he chose or it was assigned to him at North Carolina. Um, the guy that beat him out as Mister Basketball <laughs> that year is his roommate. And he says, he says later at his Hall of Fame speech, he says, now I didn't tell him, I didn't tell you, but I made a decision when you shook my hand that first day, I'm going to be better than you. I used that as fuel for my fire. And then Dean Smith, when Dean Smith, you didn't uh, let me be on that Sports Illustrated cover my freshman year because I was a freshman. You didn't know it, Dean Smith. Dean Smith was the coach at North Carolina, but I used that as fuel for my fire. And, uh, he uh, in his Hall of Fame speech, he, which I watched after the uh, after I watched the first episode um, of this documentary, he goes through and he he knows the the logical part of him, the the human side of him knows he should be up there to thank the people that have helped him, that have made his career and his greatness possible. And he says at the be- at the end, he says, "I'm 20 minutes into this thing, and I I, I told myself I'm just going to come up and say thank you, and I'm sorry." He went on a 23 minute rant listing all the people that he had encountered in his life that um, he said that the metaphor he continues to use, he said, um, was fuel for my fire that he used um, as kind of um, to fuel his will to power. And he really is the most Nietzschean figure I think we have seen in our lifetime, Christopher. Wouldn't you say um, that he is just pure will to power? The, mm-hmm. the point, a great human existence, a glorious human existence is that which doesn't take morality into account, but looks around at the tools available and says, what can I use to advance my greatness and uh, achieve power? Mm-hmm. And that is just Michael Jordan all the way to the very bottom. It's just will to power all the way down. Um, it's <laughs> it's remarkable. He uh, There's this great quote. <laughs> he he they, There's a clip from maybe December of his rookie year, right? So six weeks into his rookie year. And a reporter asks him, so Mr. Jordan, how would you describe your transition to the NBA? And he he begins to kind of give a political answer like, oh, he said, ah, well, uh, actually it's been fine. <laughs> um, because uh, everything, everything he encountered, whether it was his first year in the NBA, his first month in the NBA, um, his first All-Star game, uh, everything he used as a reason to um, crush skulls and build a tower of skulls in front of him and uh, just climb it. And it's uh, it's remarkable. I um, mean, this is kind of what's this uh, documentary is what's taking over the culture right now. And um, 
It's interesting. It's in contrast with some of the the athletes that you and I grew up liking. Certainly flawed individuals, um, right? As Vikings fans, Christopher, Chris Carter. Mm-hmm. I'm a flawed individual, an alcoholic. Certainly braggadocious, even kind of once he came to Christ. Um, but 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 at the same point, recognizing that and understanding to what he owed the person to whom he owed everything, and that was Jesus, mm. right? And we've seen other athletes like that. Tori Hunter, a great twin. Um, Kirby Puckett would talk with humility and gratitude as well. And it's just um, when Michael Jordan even knows that he should adopt a posture of humility and gratitude, he, he, he can't pull it off and he gets diverted rather quickly. Um, so I've monologued. Uh, you you had, um, we, when we talked before the show, you had some rather interesting thoughts on the matter. Yeah. One of them is I just wonder what it's like to grow old. Uh, with a personality like Michael Jordan, um, mm. do, do you does the satisfaction of winning those six rings in eight years does that does is is that kind of what you go back to or you know Jordan was also known as a compulsive gambler um, and yes. uh, and uh, like does he get um, just like does he get fed that way by by winning after losing big um, like what what is it that um, that, that satisfies you uh, if like once you're done crushing other people or, or do you just continue to gamble? And, and is that um, kind of what brings you satisfaction? Um, so that's gotta be just a hard thing. Um, when you put, when you define yourself by um, being better than those around you, that's, that's a hard thing to live with. And I, and I, 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 I our, go ahead. It's in defiance of our human trajectory East of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he will not be great as his body continues to fade. Right, right. Well, and it's interesting. Uh, I I don't even remember the circumstances. I don't think I've ever watched uh, any. I think it was just pure coincidence that I turned on the TV that evening and watched him his and his speech. Because I don't think I've ever watched another NBA um, Hall of Fame induction. Um, but do you know who the other person was that was inducted on that day? Was it John Stockton? It was John Stockton. <laughs> And and like the the speeches could not have been more different. I mean, John Stockton is, is was bland and unmemorable, and just just I think it was just gratitude, just grateful for like um John Stockton, one of the greatest players that ever lived, the the career leader in assists and steals, um just a phenomenal underrated basketball player, um who's just this ordinary looking guy, and um I th- he was just what I remember is he's just filled with gratitude for for just the blessings of this life of like that he got to live this life of basketball but now he's a parent and a grandparent and and he's kind of moved into a different parts of life and i i remember being struck by just the the stark dichotomy there yeah and was jerry sloan inducted that day too uh the coach of the jazz if he was i, I didn't see that speech and i don't remember yeah yeah, Jordan. Jordan comments at one point on Stockton, and and you can tell he can almost feel the contrast in tone, and yet you you can't be any other than what you are at some point in life, right? And he just kind of shrugs his shoulders and plows on ahead uh, through his airing of it's not not so much an airing of grievances, but it says like we're stepping on stepping on heads. Yeah. Um, but we, we had talked, Christopher, um, how in contrast, Jordan's means of greatness were to the gospel means of greatness, which mm. Jesus lays out in the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Um, blessed are they that mourn. Um, and I, I think I had commented, uh, you, you had commented that someday uh, Jordan will meet his maker. Right? He will see our Lord face to face. And uh, and he was not meek and he was not poor in spirit. He probably mourned. I mean, we all mourn. Um, and uh, And what will be his reward then? His six rings? Yeah. So, um, now I, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, well, yeah, and, and so I'm not commenting um, on the state of his soul, right? But and, but like uh, th- there is um there is definitely what we what we do want to point out is is there's no doubt about his greatness as as a competitor and as an athlete, but um we're pointing out that it came at great cost. Mm. I don't know yeah. that Jordan had great friends. Um, his teammates did not necessarily like him. Um he was just a hard person to be around. Um, and, and, um, and I would argue that that cost is certainly not worth it. Yeah. That, yep. that, that, that Jesus lays out, um, greatness. Um, and it is being a servant to all. Precisely. Amen. Amen. All right, brother. Should we end in prayer? Let's do it. Go ahead and lead us this week. All right. My pleasure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, the life of all who live, the light of the faithful, the strength of those who labor, and the repose of the dead, we thank you for the blessings of the day that is past and humbly ask for your protection through the coming night. Bring us in safety to the morning hours through him who died and rose again for us, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. O most mighty and merciful God, in this time of grievous sickness, we flee to you for comfort. Deliver us, we beseech you, from our peril. Give strength and skill to all those who minister to the sick. Prosper the means made made use of for their cure. And grant that, perceiving how frail and uncertain our life is, we may apply our hearts unto that heavenly wisdom which leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week. Next week.